for that kind introduction. I'm very excited to have this opportunity to share with you some of my research on Aquinas. Uh, in fact, I can't imagine a better audience for this. And uh, it's very kind of you to come out on a Thursday afternoon in the first week of classes. So thank you very much. Um, there's a handout. There's a handout. Does everybody have a copy? There's actually two items. There's a dialectical overview. This is the staple document. And then there's another one that has the main passage I'll be talking about along with some figures, and I'll kind of be referring to these as we go. So the title of my talk is Aquinas on Bodily Place Without Incorporeal Space. And this is part of a broader research project to understand Aquinas' views about place, both in the context of his broadly Aristotelian physics and in his theology. Uh, but for today, I'm just going to focus on what he has to say about bodily place, which is the type of place he considers in the context of his physics. And in this sense, a place is just somewhere bodies are located. Um, in the context of his theology, Aquinas also talks about places for God, angels, and souls, or what we might call spiritual places, but I'm going to set those aside for today. Aquinas thinks there are two questions we can ask about place, and really about any theoretical entity. Do they exist? Do such entities exist? And if so, what are they? So, unsit and quid est. Aquinas thinks in the case of bodily places, it's obvious that they exist, because there is bodily locomotion, that is, changes, um, changes that bodies undergo when they change their places. And if bodies are changing with respect to their places, there must be some places with respect to which they're changing. Uh, so for him, the real question about bodily places is, what are these things? What's their nature? And he thinks there are two main candidate theories. There's two main contenders. There are others that he considers, but the two main contenders are what I call the space view. This is the view that bodily places are regions of incorporeal space. Uh, this is the kind of view of space that's common among, say, analytic, contemporary analytic philosophers. Aquinas associates this view with the pre-Socratics, and he thinks it's a highly intuitive view, uh, the sort of view I think he thinks you come to when you just start reflecting on place. Then there's what I'll call the limit view. This is the view that bodily places are immobile limits of bodies, where limits are a certain type of bodily surface. This is the type of view Aquinas associates with Aristotle, and it's the type of view he wants to de defend. Okay, what I want to do in this talk is to explain, try to explain to you Aquinas' theory of bodily place without incorporeal space. That is, his specific understanding of the Aristotelian limit view. I'll focus on his commentary on Aristotle's physics, the first uh, physics four, chapters one through five, which, are, which constitute uh, what's sometimes called his treatise on place. And I'm gonna focus in particular on the portion of Aquinas' commentary where he's dealing with chapter four, which is the place where Aristotle himself is explaining or developing the limit view. Um, there's a kind of pedagogical challenge to talking about Aquinas' views about bodily place, 
and it's, it has to do with his theory being so complicated and difficult to understand. Um, it's not a familiar view. Uh, and then there's the further difficulty that he allows this view to just emerge gradually over the course of his treatment of a notoriously dense and difficult stretch of Aristotle's physics. Um, so I've toyed with different ways of dealing with this challenge, but my strategy, the strategy I've hit on is just to start off with a kind of opinionated introduction or overview of what I think Aquinas' theory is, independent of any interpretive considerations, and then come back to the text and say, see, that's the view that he has there. Okay, so the discussion is divided into two parts. The first part, I'll just, it's kind of an opinionative uh, overview, and then I'll turn to Aquinas' own development in the second part. Okay, so this is under B on the handout. Maybe I can just start with an initial statement. Here's the basic idea of Aquinas' limit view as I understand it. The basic idea is bodily places are dependent objects. More precisely, they're objects that depend for their existence on two other types of being, a certain type of bodily surface, uh, namely a limit, and a certain type of spatial position, namely a spatial position in the universe as a whole. What's more, Aquinas thinks there's a kind of hylomorphic analogy uh, that's useful for understanding bodily places. Uh, in particular, he thinks bodily places depend on uh, surfaces and positions in the same basic way that hylomorphic compounds depend on matter and form. So to fully understand how he's thinking, that, that's just a kind of uh, snapshot. To fully understand this basic idea, we need to say a little bit more about what limits are, what kind of spatial position he has in mind, and how he's understanding this um, hylomorphic analogy. So that's what I'm going to do, kind of go through the background, what I take to be the Aristotelian background necessary to fill out this basic idea, and then we'll turn to the text. Okay, so limits. What's a limit? Well, it's a certain type of bodily surface. It may be helpful in this context to know, as you probably already do, that Aquinas thinks of bodies as three-dimensionally extended objects. More precisely, they're three-dimensionally extended corporeal objects or volumes. And the surfaces of bodies are two-dimensionally extended corporeal objects that surround the body. And Aquinas thinks that uh, a body's own surface depends for its existence on that body. He often uses uh, a kind of analogy. Just like an accident depends for its existence on a substance, say Socrates' whiteness depends for its existence on Socrates, so uh, say the cubical surface of some physical volume depends for its existence on the cube that it surrounds. Okay, so that's the basic idea of bodies and their surfaces, and a limit is a specific type of bodily surface. So Aquinas thinks that each and every body has its own surface, a surface that depends for its existence on and surrounds it. Uh, he likes to use hylomorphic terminology to describe a body's surface. He'll often call them forms. So uh, I've given a little definition here. A bodily surface S is a form, kind of a strange use of form, a quantitative form for a body, just in case it surrounds that body and depends for its existence on that body. But Aquinas thinks there are also bodily surfaces that can surround a body that aren't owned by that body, but rather owned by a container or a vessel that it fills. 
So a bodily surface will count as a limit for a body just in case it does surround that body but doesn't depend for its existence on that body but on some other body. That's kind of abstract, so I have a little picture to show you. If you look at figure one on the color side of the handout, uh, this is my Microsoft Word drawing of some water filling a vessel, say 15 gallon rain barrel. So the blue, so I've labeled these body one and body two. B1 is a volume of water, and that little arrow shows, hey, it's filling that hollow of the rain barrel, which is body two. And if you look at body one, you'll see um, it's got a little dotted line going around it. That's its own surface. That's S1, and S1 is a form of body one. Um, but insofar as that volume of water or body one fills a container, the rain barrel, it's also surrounded by the innermost surface of the rain barrel. I did that like in red. Uh, that's surface two. Now surface two is of course one of the surfaces or forms, quantitative forms of the rain barrel, but it's going to be a limit of the body that it's around. So B1, when it's filling that container, is surrounded by its own surface, that's its form, and it's also surrounded by uh, the inner surface of the container, which is its limit. Okay, and then one way we can mark this contrast uh, is by distinguishing different ways of surrounding. We might say a form intrinsically surrounds a body because it's belonging to the body it surrounds, whereas a limit extrinsically surrounds it. It's in some sense outside of the body. One other distinction worth drawing because it will become important later on is a distinction that we might call strict versus loose surrounding. So if we look at, um, again, this little figure, body one, we might say, is strictly surrounded by its own surface. That is, it's surrounded by it, and it's not at any distance from it. It's in contact with it. Uh, and it's also strictly surrounded by the innermost surface of that container, S2. But there's a sense in which it's also surrounded by the outer surface of the container, what I've called S3. But it is at some distance from that. And so we might just say, it's loosely surrounded by that one, but it's only strictly surrounded by boundaries that are at no distance from it. Okay, so that's what I wanted to say by way of introduction to the notion of a limit. A limit is a certain type of bodily surface, one that surrounds a body strictly, but doesn't depend for its existence on it, and so merely extrinsically surrounds it. That's one of the two types of entity that places depend on. The other type of being that they depend on is a spatial position. Uh, the general idea of a spatial position, uh, I've tried to indicate on the handout there, it's, it's basically a kind of distance relation to fixed boundaries. So I say something has a spatial position in some system or whole, if it exists at some determinate distance from fixed boundaries of that system or whole. So we might say my head has a spatial position relative to my body because it's at certain distance from the boundaries of my body. The kind of spatial position, or we might even say orientation, Aquinas will sometimes call it an ordering. Uh, the kind that he's interested in in the context of places is 
with respect to the universe as a whole. So something has a spatial position in the universe as a whole, he thinks, when it exists at some determinate distance from the poles and center of the outermost sphere of the heavens. So he's thinking of the universe as encased in a sphere, and to be somewhere in the universe is to be at a certain distance from the center and the poles of the outermost heavens. Okay, so that's the notion of limit and spatial position. Uh, briefly, on the hylomorphic analogy, um, Aquinas thinks of hylomorphic compounds as dependent objects, but they depend for their existence on two types of being, matter and form, or something like a subject or substratum, and something like a property or something like that. Uh, but Aquinas thinks that hylomorphic compounds not only depend for their existence on form and matter at a time, at any time at which they exist, but also over time. So in fact, he thinks that you're going to get a hylomorphic compound whenever you have some matter being informed by a form. And that's the only time you'll get one. So hylomorphic compounds depend for their existence at any particular time on matter being informed by a form. But they also depend for their existence over time on matter and form, and here the dependency is a little more complicated. Aquinas thinks that um, hylomorphic compounds depend on the very same form over time, but not the same matter. So for example, Aquinas thinks that Socrates is a hylomorphic compound, um, and he depends on matter and form, but he can change his matter over time, but not his form. In fact, if at any particular time he changes his form, he ceases to exist. So when he, when he dies, uh, immediately after his death, say, we'll have his corpse, the corpse will have the very same matter that he, his living body did, but there'll be two different forms. The important thing about all this is that Aquinas thinks hylomorphic compounds with the same matter can be distinct. Socrates and his corpse have the very same matter at different times, but they're distinct. And also, hylomorphic compounds with different matter over time can be the same. So Socrates can change his matter over time, but remain the same because his form has remained the same. Okay, with all this Aristotelian background in mind, let's now come back to the basic idea of Aquinas's limit view, and we can fill it out on analogy with the hylomorphic compound case. So again, bodily places are dependent objects, objects that depend, on their, depend for their existence on two types of being, a limit, it's a certain type of bodily surface, and a spatial position in the universe as a whole. They depend on these two types of being for their existence at any particular time and also over time. And just as hylomorphic compounds can change their matter but not form, so too Aquinas thinks bodily places can change their um, limit or what serves as the matter for them, but not their spatial position. Okay, here ends the opinionated overview. And now for the argument that this is the kind of view Aquinas actually has in mind. Okay, uh, Aquinas, the only place that I know of where Aquinas provides a systematic statement of his preferred version of the limit view is in his commentary on those first few chapters of Physics 4, and it's really in the second half of Physics 4 where he presents it, and that's because this is where he takes Aristotle to be presenting his own view, and he's commenting on it. 
In the second half of Physics 4, Chapter 4, uh, Aquinas thinks Aristotle is dealing with what I'm calling, for simplicity's sake, the problem of immobility. It's a kind of problem that arises from all the things he takes Aristotle to have argued for up to this point. And the problem is a kind of inconsistent triad. It's a set of three claims, each of which look really plausible at this point, but they are not jointly consistent. So the first member of this triad, or claim one, as I have it on the handout, is that places are immobile receptacles. That's kind of a mouthful, but Aquinas thinks if you focus on specific cases of locomotion, uh, in particular, his favorite examples are ones in which you have multiple bodies moving through a single place. So I kick a ball, it hits another ball, and comes to be at the place where the other ball previously was. And maybe the other ball does that with other things. In any case, he thinks if you focus on particular cases of locomotion like that, you'll see not only that there have to be places, but that a single place can be filled successively by different bodies. But what sorts of things can be filled successively? Containers, receptacles. Okay, so places have to exist. They gotta be able to be filled by bodies, so they gotta be some kind of receptacle. But also, if you think about this kind of case, it's important that the place stays the same and it's just the body that moves. So they have to be immobile receptacles, receptacles that stay put, if you like. Okay, so that's the first uh, member of this triad. The second member is regions of incorporeal space are the only receptacles for bodies that can be immobile. They seem to be the only candidates for things that could be filled by a body and stay put. Uh, bodies don't seem like a good example for that because they're the things that can move around and what else is there? Um, the third member of this triad, which Aristotle argues for in the first half of physics 4.4 is that unfortunately it's impossible for there to be any regions of incorporeal space. Uh, those arguments are extremely difficult to understand, but Aristotle is convinced that they're airtight. Aquinas is totally convinced by them, and they're both convinced that places are immobile receptacles, so what do you do? Well, Aquinas thinks what Aristotle wants to do is reject that second claim. You might have thought regions of incorporeal space, a special type of extension, different from bodily extension, uh, you might have thought those are the only things that could serve as immobile receptacles, but he thinks Aristotle wants to reject this and provide uh, an alternative that doesn't require any incorporeal space. And I've given you just a little snippet of Aquinas' commentary there, where I think it's pretty clear that he thinks this is how things are proceeding. He says, since therefore, nothing but space seems to be both a container and immobile, it seems to follow that place is a kind of spatial interval or extension which is distinct from the magnitudes or bodies that are moving with respect to place. To exclude the view just described, Aristotle shows next how the immobility of place is to be understood. And the suggestion is if we can just get clear about immobility, we can see that, hey, there can be things other than regions of space that can be immobile receptacles. Okay, and then the very next thing we get is this little snippet of Aristotelian texts I think it's like four sentences, and this is supposed to contain the whole Aristotelian theory. Um, here it is in the translation that Aquinas had access to. I've split it into uh, three paragraphs to mark the kind of division Aquinas sees, but here's how it goes. Now, just as a vessel is a mobile place, 
so too a place is an immobile vessel. For this reason, when something in that which is moving is itself moving and changing, because it's in it, as a boat in a river, it's related to it more like a vessel than a place that contains it. By contrast, a place wants to be immobile. For this reason, the whole river is more like the boat's place, since it's immobile as a whole. Hence, a thing is the first, a thing's place is the first immobile surface of its container, or the first immobile limit in our terminology. Okay, so there we have the text that Aquinas thinks provides us with the whole Aristotelian theory. Uh, this big passage that I have on the back, I'm probably not going to read it to you, but I'll point you to it at various, uh, various lines of it along the way. I've numbered its lines for ease of reference. Uh, this is Aquinas' commentary, and as I said, the only place I'm aware where he provides a systematic account of the Aristotelian theory of place as he sees it. Uh, and if we were to go carefully through this passage, I think what you'd see is Aquinas thinks the first paragraph of the key Aristotelian text just draws a distinction between vessels and places. Maybe I'll just read the first sentence. He says, Aristotle says that a vessel and a place are seen to differ in this. A vessel moves, whereas a place does not. So that's the point of paragraph one. Uh, he's got one paragraph at the very end where he comments on the correct definition of places. Then he says, Aristotle infers the definition of place from what's been shown. And he goes on to repeat Aristotle's definition. And then the whole rest of this passage A is his attempt to make sense of this boat example, which he takes to provide the key to understanding the Aristotelian view of place. And he kind of starts off talking about this boat example in just the way Aristotle does, and then he fills in a whole bunch of detail that Aristotle doesn't give and says, now, see, you can understand his definition. So what I'm going to do is focus on that, his discussion of paragraph two. This is basically lines three through 22-ish. So I've divided passage into six paragraphs. It's basically paragraphs two through five. Um, and then I'll just kind of walk you through how I think he's arguing in this passage and how we arrive at that view I sketched out in my opinionated overview. Okay, so the boat example explained. Now, it may help as we go to have in mind a kind of statement of Aquinas' understanding of locomotion. Uh, I mean, this is so obvious that it probably doesn't need staying, but a body's in locomotion, he thinks if it's changing its places over time. He does, though, often draw this distinction be between what he'll call a per se locomotion and a per accidens locomotion. So a body is in locomotion per se, when it's in locomotion, but not because it's related to anything else that's moving. By contrast, something is in peracidens locomotion if it's in locomotion, but only because it's related to something else. And the reason this distinction is important is because he takes the case of the boat in the water to be a, an example of peracidens locomotion. He's imagining a boat that's floating in a river, and the boat's moving in some direction, say downstream, and it's moving in that direction only because it's surrounded by some water that's moving in that direction. So in his example, the water is in per se locomotion, but the boat's on the water and moving because the water is moving. 
And then here's one further assumption that he never states, but it's implicit throughout. And that is that the boat is moving at the same rate as the flowing water. And so it's continuously surrounded by the same quantity of water and hence by the same watery surface or limit. Um, now there's a complication here. So if you look at figure two on the handout, Aquinas often talks as if the boat is surrounded just by water, but it's not. It's also surrounded by some air. So if you look at my little picture here, B1 can stand for boat one. And you can see it's got its own surface. And then it's also surrounded both by some water, depending on how, how much of the boat is submerged in the water, but then also by some air. So in this case, it's kind of interesting. We've got a limit that's partly composed of an airy surface and partly composed of a watery surface. Um, Aquinas is aware of this. He mostly ignores this complication. Uh, at some point in the text, all of a sudden, the word air comes out of nowhere. And you can see, oh, yeah, he's bringing that back in. Uh, but he mostly ignores it, and I suspect he's doing that because he's visualizing the boat from an aerial perspective, and hence ignoring the fact that it has any depth. So if you look at um, figure three, uh, the first three columns, this is my pictorial representation of the boat slowly moving down the river. And if you're just focusing on it from the bird's eye, you just focus on the, the little surface surrounding it. Okay. Um, so let's now turn to Aquinas' understanding of the boat example. The boat example is supposed to help us understand what the place is uh, for a material object that doesn't involve space. So the question throughout this example is, what's the boat's place in the river? Aquinas thinks he detects in that little paragraph, that second little paragraph of Aristotle's, two, uh, Aristotle's key text, two candidates for the boat's place in the river. The first candidate, which we'll see he rejects for the same reason Aristotle does, is that it's just a particular quantity of water that surrounds the boat and moves downstream with it. So again, if you look at figure three, it's Q1. Uh, that's my little abbreviation for the quantity of water that's sur surrounding the boat. Aquinas never says how big that quantity is, but he seems to be thinking of it as a proper sub-portion of all the water in the river at any given time, and one whose surface is in contact with the boat and is serving as its limit. And then the little dotted red line around the boat is supposed to be uh, that little watery surface or limit. Okay, Aquinas thinks this candidate is unpromising precisely because it's flowing and hence in motion. Indeed, like Aristotle, he says at line four that this is more like a vessel than a place, where a vessel is something that can be moved around. The obvious implication is that if something's going to be a promising candidate for the boat's place at a given time, it must be fixed or immobile. Indeed, as Aquinas says, a place, uh, he quotes this little stretch of text from Aristotle, place wants to be immobile. And Aquinas says, well, what that means is um, place is immobile on account of its very nature and disposition, he says in lines four and five. And maybe I'll just note here that the Latin term immobilis, like the English transliteration immobile, can be used in either a strong sense to mean unmovable, that is, incapable of being moved, or in a weaker sense just to mean it's fixed, it's not easily moved. And I think Aquinas sometimes goes back and forth. 
Okay, so the first candidate is a quantity of, wa uh, quantity of water that surrounds the boat. That's not a plausible candidate for the boat's place because it's moving along with the boat. The second candidate he detects in Aristotle's text, and in some sense takes Aristotle to endorse, is the river as a whole. Or as Aquinas himself puts it in line six, the whole river insofar as it's immobile. By this, Aquinas apparently means to be referring to whatever it is that serves as the boundaries of the river, say its origin, banks, mouth. For unlike the water of the river, which is constantly flowing, its boundaries can plausibly be said to be immobile, at least in the sense of being fixed or stable. Okay, and Aquinas thinks, yeah, this candidate is promising, and it's promising precisely because it's immobile in some sense. Indeed, in this respect, he follows Aristotle in saying it's more like the boat's place than its vessel. But Aquinas takes this more like to be a hint that we're on the right track, but we're not there yet. If you remember the way the Aristotelian text goes, as soon as we've identified it's more like the river as a whole, he moves on to the definition. Aquinas, though, thinks, well, there's a remaining problem here that needs to be addressed. When a body is in locomotion, Aquinas thinks, and he thinks he's learned this from Aristotle, it's not merely changing places, but changing what he calls its proper places, where a body's proper place is one that is completely filled by a body. But notice the river as a whole can't be the boat's proper place at any time since the boat doesn't completely fill it. On the contrary, the river as a whole is at best one of what Aquinas calls the boat's common places. He calls it a common place at line six. So here he's commenting on what Aristotle has shown so far, and he says, in this way, therefore, the whole river, insofar as it's immobile, is a commonplace. But as he goes on to point out, a body's commonplace is one that includes a body's proper place, as well as proper places for other objects, say, any other boats or objects in the river. As Aquinas sees it, therefore, we're still in need of a candidate for the boat's proper place at a given time. So those two candidates were candidates really for bodies or the boat's commonplace, only the second was a good candidate for that, but we still need um, an account of the boat's proper place in the river. And here we turn, Aquinas thinks, to a candidate um, that isn't explicitly mentioned by Aristotle. Aquinas suggests that to understand the boat's proper place, and here, as I've suggested, he goes beyond anything in Aristotle's own text, we need to return to Aristotle's first candidate, that is the particular quantity of flowing water that surrounds the boat, and consider that first candidate in relation to the second one, that is, the river as a whole. As he says in line seven, it's necessary to understand the boat's proper place in the flowing water as ordered to the whole river. And here I think we get the first hints of a hylomorphic analogy for understanding bodily place. For the suggestion seems to be that in the case of the boat's proper place in the river at a given time, it's something that depends for its existence on two other things. The particular quantity of flowing water that surrounds the boat at that time and the spatial position of that water in the river as a whole at that time. Aquinas goes on to make the Highland, Highland, this analogy more explicit shortly, suggesting that um, 
the particular quantity functions as the matter for the boat's place, whereas its spatial position in the river functions as its form. And hence, he suggests that the boat's proper place is a compound of both. And you can see this if you look at lines 9 and 10, where he talks about the water being in flux materially, with the contrast being not formally. And then in lines 15 and 17, he compares a proper place of a boat to a fire, which is said to remain the same with respect to its form, even if its matter is changing when you add more wood. Okay, this analogy has three, as I say, it has three important implications. That is to say, if we think of bodily places on analogy with hylomorphic compounds, but they're compounds instead of matter and form, they're compounds of bodily surface or limit, or sorry, in this case, quantity of water and uh, spatial position in a river. Um, this analogy has three important implications. First, the boat has a proper place at each of the times it's on the river. And again, if you look back at my little figure three, you'll see if we think of proper places as compounds of water and spatial position in the river, you'll see at each of the times, I've given four times, but look at just the first three, um, it will be a compound of a quantity and a particular spatial position at each of those times. So it'll have a proper place at each time. It will also have different proper places at different times um, because at each of, the same, each of the times, it will have a different spatial position. It'll start off you know, in contact with the origin, then it'll be in the center, finally at the mouth. And finally, it will also have um, implications for the persistence of proper places over time. Each of the boat's proper places in the river is fixed or immobile over time, even though the particular quantity of water associated with it is not. Aquinas doesn't emphasize either the first or second implication that I just mentioned, perhaps because they're so obvious, but he is at pains to emphasize that third implication. Uh, and here I would direct you to lines 9 and 10, where he first makes that analogy explicit. Um, and it's precisely because that third implication about the persistence of proper places over time, is, it's precisely because he thinks that's true, that the boat's proper place at one time can be filled by something else at another time, say another boat of the exact same size and shape. So here I've given you column four. Imagine at some later time, T4, a new boat appears exactly where boat one had been previously. It will now be surrounded by a new quantity of water, assuming the water is continuously flowing, but it will have the exact same spatial location relative to the river as a whole. And as we've seen, bodily places are like hylomorphic compounds. They don't require the same matter, they just require the same form. They require some matter or other, and as long as their forms are the same, then they'll be the same place. So the place P1, the place of boat one at time T1, is the very same place uh, as that of boat two at time T4. Okay, now what Aquinas says, this, this ends what Aquinas takes to be the way to think about the boat's place in this specific example. Uh, in the third, let's see, one, two, three, 
guess it's the fourth paragraph around line 12, he attempts to generalize on this particular example to bodily places in general. So he says, and through this example, we must likewise understand how the external surfaces or outer surfaces of natural mobile bodies are places in the universe as a whole. And if you look at what he goes on to say in that paragraph, I think he, he does three things. First, he moves from quantities of water to limits. So in the context of the boat example, Aquinas speaks as if what surrounds the boat is a particular quantity of water. I mean, it does, it is surrounded by a particular quantity of water. But for the sake of place, what strictly surrounds it, we might say, is uh, the inner surface or limit of that particular quantity of water. It's for this reason that when Aquinas is generalizing on the boat example, he identifies the matter of a bodily place with a limit or an outer surface of a body, an extremitas. That's the first thing he does. The next thing he does is he moves from spatial position in a river to spatial position in the universe as a whole. So in the context of the boat example, Aquinas speaks only of spatial position in a particular river. But of course, not everybody's in that particular river. Generalizing on the boat example, therefore, he identifies the form of a bodily place with a spatial position in the universe as a whole. And if you look at lines 12 and 13, here you'll see the reference to the center and poles of the universe, or the outermost heavens. Finally, uh, in the context of the boat example, Aquinas speaks of the boat's place in the primary and proper sense as distinct from its commonplace. He also takes Aristotle to be gesturing at this with his use of first in the statement of his definition at line 24. In effect, what Aquinas is doing here is, in generalizing on the boat's example, he's identifying the matter of a bodily place not only with a limit, but with one that strictly, as opposed to loosely, surrounds the body whose place it is. That's the difference between a common and a proper place. A proper place strictly surrounds you, whereas a common place just loosely surrounds you. Okay, if we take all this into account, we can restate Aquinas' view one final time. I've given it to you there. It's basically the same as what we had before, but now I've just introduced this little final refinement having to do with strict surrounding. Okay, so I kind of want to say now, see, isn't that the view that I told you at the beginning? Um, I hope you see that it is, or if it's not, I hope you tell me why it's not, and then I can fix this. Um, but it might help before we close just to zoom back out for a moment and to remember the dialectical context. So Aquinas thinks Aristotle is developing this view to deal with a certain problem, the problem of immobility. And if what I've said is right, I think we can see how he thinks it solves this problem. So the problem, recall, recall is that places are immobile containers or receptacles. Aristotle takes that for granted. He also takes for granted that there can't be any regions of incorporeal space, but then there's this problem. Regions of space, of incorporeal space, appear to be the only candidates for immobile receptacles. Aquinas thinks he's given us, in developing um, his commentary on this particular stretch of text, he thinks he's given us something like a proof of Aristotle's view that you can have immobile limits 
immobile receptacle, excuse me, in the absence of incorporeal space. And I've stated the proof here, or I've given a kind of sketch of the proof on the last page of the handout under G. So the first premise is, there can be compounds of limit and spatial position, that is, objects that depend for their existence on both types of entity, in the absence of any incorporeal space. And that seems right. All you need for that is some limits, some spatial positions. Uh, then you'll have compounds of each, and it doesn't seem like you need any incorporeal space for that. You just need bodies and their surfaces and relations to the center and poles of the outermost heavens. Uh, the second premise is, and compounds of that sort can be filled by different bodies at different times. And that seems right if we just go back and look at, say, the case of our little boat on the river. The boat on the river, um, I guess if we look at times T1 and T4, we can see that different boats can fill the same place at different times. That is to say, they can fill the same compound of um, limit and spatial position at different times. And of course, if compounds can be filled by different bodies at different times, then they'll be receptacles, because what's filled by bodies is a receptacle for bodies. Okay, so there can be compounds of limit and spatial position. They can be filled by different bodies at different times, and so be receptacles. Uh, the crucial premise is this third one. Compounds of limit and spatial position are immobile. Why think that? How does that emerge out of what we've seen? Well, the idea is that compounds can change with respect to their matter, but not with respect to their form. But the form of a bodily place just is a spatial position. And if you can't change your spatial position, then you're immobile. And so compounds of limit and spatial position can be immobile or are immobile. But of course, if all that's right, then there can be immobile receptacles for bodies in the absence of any incorporeal space. This puzzle that Aristotle was worried about gets solved and Aquinas' own positive view emerges. There's more to be said, but maybe that's a good place to stop. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'd be happy to talk about it with you afterwards. Thank you.